We are in 2 Corinthians, and we finished chapter 4 last time. And what the context is here is Paul is responding to something. And from the nature of his response, it feels like what he's responding to is allegations that he is perhaps not on the up and up. For example, everywhere he goes, he gets in trouble. He gets thrown out of town, he gets stoned, he gets beaten, all those kinds of things. And the allegation seems to be, if this guy were a man of God, why is all this happening to him? And furthermore, I sort of get the impression that if God loves this guy, how come he's getting beat up all the time? And you can find that kind of attitude in the church today. Well, I mean, if God loves you, how come all these bad things are happening to you? There was a book a number of years ago, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? That kind of thing. I get the impression that those are the allegations that he's dealing with. I'm going to pick it up in 2 Corinthians 4.16. We did this last time, but this will sort of give us a run at the next chapter. So verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. A couple of things. In this discourse that he's doing, us refers to Paul and his traveling companions. When he's speaking to the Corinthians, he says, you. So us and you both get used depending on who he's pointing at. So when he says us, he's talking about the affliction that he and his traveling companions are undergoing, not any affliction that the Corinthians are undergoing. And one of the things that happens with this passage, as they do with lots of the Bible, is you sort of jump into the middle of a conversation and take something that is written as self-contained. And so this is used, for example, to justify all sorts of suffering and all that kind of stuff. And we're supposed to be brave and bear up. And, and don't get me wrong, we are supposed to be brave and bear up. But Paul is talking specifically about what he has endured because he is a missionary and an evangelist. If you weren't going to synagogues and confronting pagans and confronting the Orthodox Jews, he wouldn't be getting into all this trouble. So the trouble that he is in is in the context of his role as an apostle, not something that every Christian should expect to undergo. I'm not suggesting that being a Christian or a believer is going to exempt you from any or all suffering. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm simply saying that in this context, that's not what he's saying. One other thing, and I think we talked about this for a while last time, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I suspect that I said last time that the spiritual created the physical, not the other way around. So we live in a physical world, but the physical world that we live in is something that is created by the spiritual, by God, and we know according to scripture that it's going to be passing away. It's, it's going to be rolled up like a scroll, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So what Paul is saying here is, 
It is not that this is unimportant. It is important because God made it and he put us in it for a purpose. So I'm not suggesting that this world is unimportant. But what I am suggesting is that this world is not something you should fall in love with because it isn't permanent. It's temporary. It is going to be replaced with something that is permanent. Just a, a side note, one of the connotations of the Hebrew word for sin is falling in love with something that is transient as opposed to falling in love with the eternal. So the idea that you should focus on God, fall in love with God, that you should do all of your actions with a view toward God's opinion of what you're doing is true, but it doesn't mean that what you're doing here is not important. It is. But sin is where somebody falls in love with this world to the exclusion of the next. What they do is they live their lives so as to maximize this world as opposed to maximizing their relationship with God. There used to be a t-shirt a number of years ago, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the attitude I'm talking about. Somebody whose sole focus is on this world and so orients his life so that this world is the only thing that matters. What that winds up doing is if the only thing that matters is your own self-interest, you will wind up doing despicable things to other people as you try and maximize your benefit. Whereas if your focus is on God, you recognize that this is not all there is, and there are other considerations as opposed to simply maximizing what happens in this world. The other part of that is what you do in this world, as I describe it, you are building the seed that is going to be put in the grave and is going to grow a resurrection body. Remember in other parts of scripture, Yeshua or Paul describes this life in an agricultural metaphor with the idea that a seed doesn't produce life unless it's planted in the ground. And when it does sprout and germinate and bring forth whatever its plant is, you dig down and rummage around in the dirt, you can't find the seed anymore because the seed has died and he uses that metaphor for resurrection body. So the idea here in this life is you are setting up the seed that will be planted in the grave so that as you are raised from the dead, the plant or the new resurrection body that is raised from that will be that much more glorious. So now, on to chapter 5. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now, instead of using a seed as a metaphor here, he's using a tent as a metaphor for the body that he's inhabiting right now. He's used jars of clay as a metaphor, same thing. We're brought forth from the earth. God made us from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into the clay, if you will, to make it come to life. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. At the end of chapter 4, he says, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So he's shifting focus, if you will, from the stuff that has been happening to him to the stuff that is his hope. Verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, 
we may not be found naked. I'm not sure what to do with the not be found naked part. Actually, let me finish the paragraph and we'll come back and talk about it. For while we are still in this tent, we sigh, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I'm not sure what the naked part is. I'm speculating here. This is a guess. One of the things about pagan religion, especially Greek, and certainly about Gnosticism, but Gnosticism is basically it looks a lot like Christianity except your salvation depends on how much you know. So, for example, the Masons are a Gnostic organization. You get brought into the mystery and you take a whole bunch of oaths and then the more you learn and the more information you get, the higher you rise in the organization. Okay? It's a Gnostic organization. And the thing about Gnosticism, as it is with some Eastern religions, is that what you're doing in this life is you are working on your soul with the idea that you can get off the wheel, which is to say that when you die, you don't get reincarnated. When you die, you don't come back. And various religions have various perspectives on that. So some of the Eastern religions, it's if you do better in this life, the next reincarnation, you're higher up. So you're sort of working your way up the food chain. But the goal here is to become a disembodied spirit. And they regard the material as a prison. We are trapped in these material bodies. And what we really want it to be is these eternal spirits unencumbered by physicality. So now, my speculation. When Paul says he does not want to be naked, he may in fact be referring to that. The idea that in the pagan economy, being naked, quote-unquote, a spirit without a body is to be desired. Paul does not want that because that is not Hebrew. Hebrew is you get planted in the grave, and at some point you get raised from the dead, and you get a new body. The goal, then, is to have your new body, your resurrection body, if you will, in the new heaven and the new earth where you have an inheritance. The thing you're looking forward to is resurrection and passing judgment. In other words, being, being judged and passing that judgment and then going on to live eternally in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the Hebrew Christian perspective. I am speculating here when I am wondering if when Paul says naked, He's talking about the pagan belief of a spirit unencumbered by a body. The reason I went where I went, not necessarily that I'm right, was because he's writing to former Greek pagans who would have grown up with the idea that the highest good is to become a disembodied spirit free of material constraints. Regardless, what Paul is anticipating and desiring is to put on what I would call a resurrection body, which is a body that is immortal. Verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at 
home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. What he's obviously saying there is at some point after the resurrection, everybody appears before Christ. And you are judged based on what you do here before you die. And you will be judged both for the good and the evil that you do. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons I like one of David's psalms. Please don't attribute to me the sins of my youth. Certainly in Christian theology and in Jewish theology, both. The idea that once you have repented of your sin, you are a new creation. And it is no longer appropriate to punish you for something that somebody else did. So once you have repented of your sin and turned to God, what God does is makes of you a new creation, forgives your sins. Your sin is paid for, but it's not paid for by you. It is paid for by Messiah. And since you are now a new creation, the stuff that the old creation did, that's not you. This is you now. And the you now is without sin. The you then may have done whatever. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Clearly, somebody has been confusing them, talking badly about Paul. And what Paul is saying is, what I'm trying to do is give you ammunition to answer these people who are calling my ministry into question. And, by the way, who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart, what he's been talking about in this entire letter so far, is, yeah, I've been roughed up all over the Mediterranean basin. I've been thrown in jail. I've been beaten. I've been stoned. All of those things are true, but that isn't how you should judge me. The way you should judge me is by what I've taught you and what's in my heart, which is what I'm writing to you now. So his critics are judging based on outward appearances. What Paul is saying is you should not judge by outward appearances, but by what is in my heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Bunch of stuff in there. For the love of Christ controls. In other words, I am focused on the eternal, not the temporal, because we have concluded this that the one has died for all, therefore all have died. Remember he's been talking about being dead previously in the letter? So what he's saying is, 
because Messiah died for our sins, therefore we have all died and are new creations. So what he's obviously saying here is that Messiah died for us, therefore we have all died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So what he's saying is, he died for you, therefore you have died and you are dead to your sins, and at some point you also will be raised. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, which is what I was just saying. Since he died for you, that means you have died. That means that the body of sin, if you will, has been put away. And you now are a new creation. And the sins of previous you are not attributed to you because previous you no longer exists. So, verse 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So all of this where he's saying us is talking about himself and his companions, not the Corinthian church. So when he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul is saying that he has been reconciled to Christ and his companions, and he and his companions have been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. What Paul is saying is I, Paul, or we, Paul and his traveling party, are ministers of reconciliation, which is to say Christ has appointed us to go out to the Gentiles and reconcile the Gentiles to God. Paul is saying, I've been given that mission. I have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's what I'm called to do. That's what the letter says. Full stop. If you are a Corinthian, you can turn around and say, through the ministry of Paul, I have been reconciled to God. That's what's being said in the letter. Ministry of reconciliation is, my job is to go out and reconcile people to God. That's what a ministry of reconciliation is. You, as one who has been reconciled to God, may have a completely different mission. That's what the letter is saying here. Remember, this is in the context of people are doubting Paul's credentials. And so what he's saying is, I got given this ministry of reconciliation, and, and oh, by the way, I'm doing it. Pick it up at 18 now and flip through it. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the us and you. So all of this us, if you will, is Paul and his companions, and he's talking to you, the addressees of the letter. Chapter 6. Working together with him, who's him? God or Christ. Same being. So working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. And that's a quote from Isaiah 49.8, which is talking about Israel. So in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And then we're going to have a list here. So what he's telling them is we are ministers of reconciliation and we want you to be reconciled to God. The appropriate day to do that is today when you hear this message, which, by the way, should reflect back to Hebrews, which is one of the reasons I think Paul wrote Hebrews. So Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion, in the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He goes into a rift there that salvation is still available because today is still called today. There will be a time when this is no longer today. That will be in the new heaven and the new earth, and then it will be too late. But while it is called today, in other words, while you're in this time stream, don't neglect the salvation that's being offered to you. And he's saying much the same thing in Corinthians, verse two and a half. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation, while it's still called today. So today is a perfect day to get saved because every day where you are is always today. Verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance with afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. So again, he is listing the characteristics of his ministry as he sees it. Verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, yet are true, 
as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. What he's obviously doing is contrasting the way he has been portrayed to the Corinthian church with how he is seen by God and how he sees himself. So at the end of the day, all of the things that have happened to him in the world's estimation has taken everything away from him, but he regards himself as having everything, as having lost nothing of importance. Verse 11, we have spoken freely to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And this goes back to what I was talking about earlier. If you set your affection on the things of this world, then your affection cannot be set upon eternal things because your affection cannot be divided. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is from Leviticus. Therefore go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be, my, be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. That's a quotation from Leviticus 26. I don't know what the unequally yoked is unless he is talking about the people who have been harassing the Corinthians. They have been swayed to question Paul's credentials. And in that questioning, they may have been seduced to follow a different teaching. Don't know for sure. So for example in Galatians when Paul had gone through and set up the Galatian church some members of the circumcision party who are messianic Jews who believe that Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved came through and sowed confusion among the Corinthians because Paul had said nothing about circumcision, and these guys are saying, in order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. So I don't know what is being said about Paul to the Corinthians. I don't know who is speaking about it. Could be pagans. Could be non-Messianic Jews. I don't think it's Messianic Jews of the circumcision party because circumcision is never mentioned. And if that were the problem, as it was in, in Galatians, I'm sure he would have mentioned it. Up to this point, he has not mentioned anything about marriage. And he just sort of throws it in there. So I am assuming that what he's talking about is following someone who is leading them astray. I'm going to do the first verse of 7, and that's where we'll quit. Since we have these promises, beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is actually the new covenant in Leviticus. There's two 
rebukes in the Torah. The one at the end of Leviticus and the one at the end of Deuteronomy. And the one at the end of Leviticus says that I'm going to send you into exile for all your sins, but I'm going to bring you back. And when I do bring you back, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's the new covenant. Okay. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So this goes back to do not be unequally yoked, which I am inferring is talking about somebody who is teaching them amiss. All right, I'm not going to go further into chapter 79.